really appreciate our praise and worship team and songs like that serve as a reminder that we respond to God's love. Right? We didn't seek him out. We didn't make an offer of love towards him, waiting for him to respond to us. He extends his love towards us, and that is why we in turn love him. And it reminds us that we serve a good God, a God who is loving and caring. And there's a passage that says he will not break a bruised reed, meaning us. We are weak and frail, like a bruised reed, and he's not, he's not going to break that all the way. He's gentle with us. So on that note, as we look at difficult passages of Scripture, it's important that we remember who it is we're talking about. We're talking about our good and merciful and kind, loving Father. So last week and this week, we're dealing with difficult texts, and the temptation can be just to pass over them quickly and very uh, kind of in summary say, well, this is true, but, and then spend the rest of your time not talking about what the text is saying, but the places that are comfortable. But it is important that even when we look at difficult texts that we remember who it is we're talking about. And that's true of all of life. When you encounter difficulty and hardship, that you remember who it is you serve. You remember what lengths He took to make your salvation possible. With that, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time where we can gather and feed on Your Word, and I pray that the words I speak would serve to illuminate what You're saying to us through these words. I pray that we would leave here desiring to obey what is written in these words and loving You more as a result of how this text reveals who You are. I pray these things in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. So last week we spent exclusively um, on verse 1 in chapter 2. And I talked about the fact that this is the author's trap, if you will. What he had done in chapter 1 is raise our attention and awareness and remind us and bring our focus to the glory of Jesus, that He is exceedingly great and that He is superior to the angels. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to Moses. 
And on and on he went, comparing Jesus to every other thing. Jesus himself is the I am, Yahweh, the Lord. And hopefully we were brought along or swept along with that glorious reminder of who Jesus is and agreed with him and rejoiced with what he was saying. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So we talked at length about this idea of paying attention to something or clinging to something. The theme that he repeats multiple times, the author of Hebrews saying, hold fast. And the idea was that this was a nautical term that he was using where a boat would lash itself or tie itself to the dock or that the anchor would be properly fastened. And that's the way we need to be related to Christ in our confession, that we would hold tightly, we would maintenance that connection, those ropes that connect us to the Lord. It's not something you can neglect or forget about. And so I ask three questions. Do you believe that drifting away from the truth is a real danger for you? Because the text indicates it is. So why else would we need to pay much closer attention to it if the real danger of drifting were not a real thing? Second question is, what safe words or beliefs or even truths do you run to quickly in order to soften the severe warning of this text? And third, does your life reflect this degree of serious holding fast? Your belief in the Lord... Your confidence, your hope in him can't be something like your homeowner's insurance. Once you get it set up, it's deducted out of your escrow account and it just gets paid. And only if your house really burns down, do you ever think about, well, we've got insurance. It's not something that you rejoice in or or revisit unless you're a super financial nerd, right? It's just in the background. It's there protecting your home. That's not what faith is like. That's not what our confidence in the Lord is like. It can't be. Before we get to verses 2 through 4, there are some things that even in the hour we spent over that one verse that we weren't able to get to. And that is a particular encouragement. And I think that verse, verse 1, offered many encouragements. But there is one that we didn't have time to get to, and I want to extend that to you. I think it is possible to, as I've said multiple times already this morning, too quickly run to comfort. There is a virtue in letting yourself sit under the hard teaching of Scripture and asking the hard questions and not jumping quickly to an encouragement. So after letting that message or that text hopefully marinate in your minds for the last week, if you heard it, Here is an encouragement to you. There is an unstated or implicit encouragement in the text. I'm not just manufacturing this. It's here. Because the author himself is saying to his hearers, we must pay much closer attention. The implication is this is a possibility as well. Just as it is a possibility that we would drift, and that's a real danger, it is also a possibility and it is available to you that you would hold fast. Because that's what he's issuing as a command, an imperative. Hold fast. You can hold fast, believer. 
He has made this possible for you by the strength of the Holy Spirit if you've been truly changed by Him. And you will hold fast. You will endure if you are in Him. Second encouragement, the sufficiency belongs to Christ. It will not be by the strength of our grasp onto Christ and onto the truth whereby we endure, but by the strength of His grasp on us. Does that make sense? If we endure to the end, if we're in Christ, we will endure to the end, but it will not be by our own strength clinging to Him. It will be by His strength in clinging to us. He will hold you fast. He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. So it's kind of a both end. And you can see this in Philippians 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make this thing we've been talking about, the gospel or life in Christ. I press on to make it my own because Christ has already made past tense me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Like I I haven't arrived, he's saying. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this dynamic is all over Scripture and even Jesus Himself. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, verses 23 through 25. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It's a fascinating question. Someone asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And He said to them, He doesn't answer the question right out. Look at what he says. Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand out and knock the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. That's this dynamic. Christ has already made us His own. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Him, if He is your only hope, if the truth about Jesus, past, present, and future is the most important thing about you, then He has made you His own. Yet, it still says strive to enter by that gate because those who are owned who are made Christ's, will strive. And now we come to verses 2 through 4. 
And I'll just read those verses again. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For since, so it begins to prove why he said verse 1. This is the supporting argument for verse 1. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So why does the author say this? Why does he need to intensify or prove his case? Because he's made a serious and sobering claim in verse 1. And those who are sensitive to the leading of the word or by the Lord or sensitive to the leading of the apostles in that time or the pastors in those times, maybe they wouldn't need their, the case intensified. Maybe they wouldn't need proofs offered to show that he's not out of sync by saying what he said in verse 1. So it indicates that there might have been in his intended audience a degree of hardness of heart. And it's not for no good reason. There was likely a temptation to just go back to being a good old Jew because Rome wasn't killing them then. Rome didn't really have a problem for you being a devout Jew at that time. But you bring Christianity and this devotion to Jesus, then the Jews and the Romans start persecuting you. And many were losing their lives and many were losing their possessions and family an occupation, it was very unpopular and very problematic to be a believer in that time. And so imagine his audience. This is a group of churches he's writing to, people who were Jewish, most likely, at least the majority, and were considering whether or not they should continue to cling to the truth about Jesus. Because this was recent. Think about it. This was only in the last 50, 60 years that Jesus had come. And so there's some time of separation. So why do we have to change everything? I mean, God delivered to us the old covenant. We were getting clobbered for being faithful to that by the Romans and by the Jews. So at least now. So why should we re-enter persecution by clinging to this new development? with the things about Jesus. And so a question to you, what reasons do you have for turning back or loosening your grasp? Maybe they're not as pronounced as full-out persecution. I don't think anyone in this room has ever had the threat to their lives for being a Christian, unless you've traveled to other nations and been a missionary in some way. Very rare circumstances nowadays for American believers for you to actually have the threat of losing your life for clinging to Christ. But there are many other reasons that you might just loosen your grasp. 
You might do so out of sloth. It is a great undertaking to hold fast to Christ. It requires much energy and effort, and it is an all-consuming task. And sometimes we just get tired. It might be out of ease, because the way of Christ is difficult, and it's easier to just go back to the way things were. It might be out of shame. You might be forced to have conversations or stand for what you believe in circumstances where you are ridiculed or made fun of for holding to Christ and the truth about Jesus. And that is no small thing. Or, and I think this is probably the greater danger for the majority of us, it might be that for you and your mind and your heart that the claims of Christianity, the claims about Jesus just aren't compelling or exciting anymore. And there's a better narrative or there's a better or more exciting way to describe your life and to think about your life and what you want out of life than Jesus and what God has done in Jesus. So this is where the author finds his hearers and it might be where this text finds you today. The temptation to just back off. It's not that you're necessarily going to abandon Christ and say that he's not the son of God, but maybe you just don't, it's not as big of a deal to you, doesn't define everything about who you are, and you just kind of step back from full devotion and attention and clinging to him. And here's how he makes his case. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... We have to deal with this because it, it raises many questions immediately. What is he talking about? What is the message declared by angels that he's referring to? In the context here, he's referring to, in general, the entire Old Testament, or more specifically, the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. The commands, the promises, and the curses. An important clarification before we move on. Depending on your translation, it says the message declared by angels or the message declared through angels. In Greek, it's the same word, by and through. But through is probably a better translation here. And even in English, they mean essentially the same thing, right? We say, I sent that letter by first class mail or I sent that through the mail. Like you are sending something and you use something else to do it, right? I accomplished X through Y or I accomplished X by Y. It means the same thing. So he's not saying that the angels were the ones who did the speaking only. This implies there are two actors, two agents. There is the speaker and the one through whom that speaker spoke. Right? And I'm sorry, yeah, this is kind of a thinking cap grammar moment, and I'm sorry, because it's the weekend. But you have to pay attention to these things. He's not saying that angels showed up and declared the covenant by themselves without connection to the Lord. The God is the one who's speaking here. Just like the prophets that we saw in chapter 1. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by or through the prophets, right? 
So this is what he's saying, that it was declared by or through angels. So what is he saying here? There's this dynamic in Exodus when God speaks to Moses. He says, um, this is chapter 7, verse 1, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So here we have multiple layers. So God is communicating a message to Pharaoh, but he sends intermediaries, namely Moses and Aaron. And so God has a message to extend. He doesn't show up to Pharaoh directly in a dream or a vision or a theophany. He sends Moses and Aaron, and then Moses acts as a second layer. Moses is speaking to Aaron because Moses apparently couldn't speak very well. So Moses declares the message that he receives from God to Aaron, and then Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. So you have two intermediaries, and God often works this way. He even works that way immediately after Jesus is taken up through the apostles. Jesus never wrote a book. It was the apostles through whom God appointed to act as the distributor or the administer of this new covenant. So we have a few questions here. How can he say that it was declared by or through angels? If you know your Old Testament, if you know the stories, you think back and you say, well, wasn't it God who spoke? And while that is true in the amazing incident on Mount Sinai, we hear the voice of the Lord. But that is not the majority. I want to read to you what happened, and this is why God used an intermediary. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and I'll pick it up in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and, Mo and said to Moses, speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And then skip over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5, verse 28. This is Moses essentially recounting that experience. And the Lord heard your words. That is the outcry of the people saying, don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. Verse 20, 28, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me. And I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
So Moses, in a general sense, worked as a messenger. It's the same Greek word for angel, right? We get this term, we call it angel, but it's not explicitly or only confined to the idea of of a heavenly being. Moses works as a messenger for God. But the text is really saying, because of chapter 1, the context demands that the heavenly beings, not just Moses, worked as an intermediary. However, if you look at Exodus 19 and 20, there is no indication whatsoever that angels played any part. They're not mentioned at all. But there are some clues throughout Scripture that indicate what he's speaking of. And I'm going to go through a few passages. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. This comes from Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. And he basically puts on a clinic on the Old Covenant. And he explains how God worked and led up to the revealing of the Son of God. So if you look at the end of his speech, verse 51, this is his conclusion after he's recounted all of Israel's history and God's work through the fathers. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Fascinating. In the same speech, if you rewind back to verse 33, I'm sorry, 35, says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. If you know your Old Testament, that was the Lord who appeared to Moses in the bush. Yet Stephen says here, by the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So is the Bible contradicting itself? And yes, I am intentionally raising this question because if you just read through and you don't pay attention and then someone else comes and challenges you later, you don't know how to deal with it. What's going on here? So this goes back to the Jewish idea that no one could see God and live. The idea is that even in the bush, God acted through an intermediary or a messenger. That was not the full unveiling of the glory of God. Because when you go to the section where Moses even asks to see the glory of God, it is not a muted kind of small bush smoldering without being burned up. It is so glorious he has to turn and hide Moses in the cleft of the rock where he can only see his back. So the idea is that God is so glorious and so powerful and so majestic that he has to interact with us through intermediaries. Even angels. If you look at Deuteronomy 33, again, you don't have to turn there. I know we're going around quite a bit. Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 through 4. This is some of what Stephen might have been talking about. 
This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So Moses is recounting his experience on the mountain and there's an indication that God was accompanied or surrounded by the heavenly hosts in a way intensifying his glory in that experience. Also, look at how even Paul talks about this aspect in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 19 through 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, meaning Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So the most important question we have to ask, and I know this is maybe in your mind you're thinking, how does this apply? How am I going to respond to this? What, is, what does this even mean? Why did we spend so much time on this? Why does he say that? And we can often try to immediately spiritualize the text so that it, it makes sense for us, or that we'll get away with two or three nice little points how we apply it in our lives. We can come to the text or come in here on a Sunday morning and say, man, I've got issues with my marriage. I've got issues with my kids. I've got issues with my job. Tell me something, preacher, that'll help me in those spheres. It's like we come and we're trying to understand our lives in a little five by seven picture. And if the Bible doesn't help us understand that little five by seven picture of our issues, our work, our family, our marriage, then we depart feeling like, well, that didn't really help me. That didn't really even apply to my situation. Yet scripture wants us to see the entire world and it paints with an extremely broad brush and at the same time, an extremely precise brush. It is as fine as the smallest quill, yet as broad and as powerful as a tsunami. And it helps us see what God is doing in the world. And this is what the Bible should be for you. It's not the place you go to help your messes, to fix the problems that you encounter in your life. It is where you go to understand this world that God has made and what is really going on in the world. And through that understanding, through that lens that the Bible gives you in order to understand the world, then the issues of your marriage, your family, your kids, your job, all of that begins to make sense and take shape. So why? This talk of the angels. Why does the author even say this? I mean, I'm spending this time because we sped through the second half or the second two thirds of chapter one. And that is all talking about Jesus's superiority to the angels. So he's bringing it up again here in chapter two. Here are a few things that I think we're supposed to take from this. 
First is the superiority of Jesus over every other form of spirituality. The superiority of a commitment to Christ and your living life in trying to live and be like him is more important than any other spiritual experience or brand of spirituality out there. There are many competing voices in your life that tell you what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And you may hear someone speak of their testimony or how they encountered God or experienced God or feel God's presence or know He is near. But Jesus is the one who's superior, superior to all of that. He's superior to the angels. Even the angels is the author's point. Even Michael and Gabriel pale in comparison. They are just meant to serve as ministering spirits. They are underneath supporting, as it were, the glory of this great gospel. They're just servants, even sent out to serve for your sake. So every other brand or definition of spirituality out there, every time you think, well, I, I haven't experienced that, or I don't know that type of deeper life, or I haven't felt this way or that way, set all of that aside. It's about Christ and your commitment to Him and becoming like Him. Because even the angels serve to show the superiority of the new covenant in Christ. For the Jews, the point is that Jesus is over and above even the angels, which they revered so highly. For us, here's a way to think about this. Even the heavenly hosts, the very holy ones of God, who cause men to be struck with fear, through whom God does many mighty works, have no comparison. There is no experience in your life, spiritual or otherwise, that ought to even be close to the importance of the truth about Jesus. We tend to define our lives by experiences. Even by very short experiences. Something someone important told you, or a person you met, or a book you read, or a trip you went on, or something horrible that happened to you. Maybe you've even seen something extremely spiritual, a miracle even. And the point of Scripture is all of that serves to point us, if it's from God, it is serving to point us to the superiority of Jesus. And you knowing Him puts all of that to shame. And that's the most important thing about your walk with the Lord. So we have here a contrast, and this is what the author is trying to do. It's not as if he's trying to make the Old Covenant look inferior or small or less important. He's saying this great covenant that we're all familiar with, that was communicated to us or mediated to us by intermediaries, by angels. So if God sends His Son, the very... Lord Himself to communicate this new covenant that intensifies or should raise our 
appreciation for this new covenant. So then he says, following on verse 2, he says, and I, I promise that was the majority of my point here. He says, proved to be reliable. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. This is a general claim. It's more broad, more neutral than what he says next. The point here is that every single aspect of the Old Testament proved to be true. This is even a legal phrase. That evidence has been presented. We've seen the case. And to anyone who's paying attention to the evidence that you can see in the Old Testament, God's word proved true. But it's pointing back to the historical record. Even though it was communicated through intermediaries, even though it wasn't Jesus himself giving the old covenant, it was through angels, according to the text, it proved to be true in every single way. It did not fail. There is no promise or curse that you could look back and say, well, God really didn't keep his word. The whole history of Israel, if you look at it from a 10,000 foot perspective, from start to finish, is a story of God's faithfulness to his word. Everything that happened to Israel, blessing or curse, is God being faithful. So that's the author's point. He's intending for us to remember all that we know about the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all that happened to the patriarchs, and for us to look and say, yeah, God proved true. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And so now he gets more specific. He's not just talking about it proving true in a general sense, but the transgressions and the disobediences received just retribution. The point here is to draw our attention to the fact that the Old Covenant, even though it was communicated through intermediaries, was no less perfect in its fulfillment. No disobedience was let off the hook. No violation was unpunished. And before we move on, just think of the hearers themselves who were most likely Hebrews. They're not for the most part, living in the promised land. And for those who were, it's under Roman rule. And the king that the Romans had set up was a mere puppet. They did not have the land. They were exiles scattered across the face of the Roman Empire. So they felt very deeply the fact that no disobedience or transgression went unpunished because they're in exile when they read this. So he's made his case. He says, here's how we know that the Old Testament has proved true. Even though it was delivered through intermediaries. Every transgression and disobedience met with just retribution. Every word of God proved true. Then he asks the question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The intensity of this question can't be understated. There's no way around 
the clear meaning and logical implications of this text. It's rhetorical. The answer is, we won't. We neglect such a great salvation that outstrips even the old covenant that was proved true in every respect and every disobedience met with just retribution, then we won't escape if we neglect this great salvation. And he's not here talking about escaping discipline. He talks about that in chapter 12. He's not talking about escaping God using difficulty in your life to bring you back to the truth. He uses completely different language when he's talking about that. Here he is talking about sudden tribulation and ruin. Look at, if you would, Psalm 73. Verse 18, he begins to talk about how how God relates to the wicked, even though it looks like the wicked are doing really well, and they're wealthy, and they're, they're making profit, and they're making their lives easy, by their wickedness. And he's frustrated. He doesn't understand it. And then he goes into the house of the Lord. Verse 16 rather. But when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. The idea here is if we neglect, if we don't care about this great salvation, if we think it is something that we can just put to the side, treat like it doesn't really matter, or something that's settled and we don't have to pay attention to, then we won't escape on the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is why the author says, and I believe it's kind of his conclusion in Hebrews 13, verse 13. He said, let us go outside the camp and endure the reproach that Jesus bore. He's inviting the Jewish Christians to endure the tribulation and the persecution for the sake of Christ, because if they're unwilling to cling to him and take whatever that means from the world and Rome's opposition and the Jewish opposition then Christ has become of no value to them. You don't have to seek out tribulation. When you try with all your might and strength that the Spirit gives you to make your life totally about the truth and about Jesus, the enemy and the world and your own flesh will ensure it is no easy task. And that's what the author is inviting us to. If that difficulty that the world and the enemy and your flesh cause you for trying to make Jesus and the truth about Jesus past, present, and future the most important thing about your life, if it's too difficult for you and you don't want to do it anymore, then there is no escape. He uses this word neglect. It literally means uncaring. We just stop caring about the Lord. says this great salvation, literally a salvation of such proportions. As I mentioned earlier, God moves heaven and earth to make this new covenant a reality. 
He sends his own son, the eternal one, to take on flesh, humiliating himself, living a perfect life, and dies a horrible death in your place for your sins. And he's raised up by the power of God and sits now interceding for us. This is astounding. So there is, if, if, if you see that and you hear that, the magnitude of those claims, and you don't care about it, if it's a small thing to you, if it's just, oh yeah, I've heard about that before, yeah, the gospel, Jesus, cross, blah, 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 then there's no escape. Because the covenant communicated just through angels, great as they were, Jesus didn't incarnate and come and communicate the old covenant. So it's an intensifier, right? I keep revisiting it. This is the idea he's saying. The old covenant didn't have Jesus come and incarnate, didn't come and speak to us, didn't die on the cross for the old covenant. They just had shadows and images of what was coming. If that covenant was met with just retribution for every disobedience, then there is no escape if you look at this great salvation and you just say, well, that's nice, but not for me. Or, sure, yeah, I believe in that, but it doesn't really define who I am. It's not the most important thing about me. It was declared first by the Lord. Now he's talking about the new covenant what he calls what we have heard. It was declared first by the Lord himself. There's no intermediary. The Lord himself comes and declares it to us. And it was preceded by 400 years of silence. No prophets. And John comes and he prepares the way. And you have indications that people could see what was coming. And the angels even... Gabriel shows up to Mary and speaks about what Jesus is going to do. But when Jesus shows up and speaks, it is the mystery hidden for ages that Jesus now makes clear. God himself declares it. This is how it should feel to you and how you should feel about the Bible. God himself declaring to you his promises, his commands his identity it was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard the author and his hearers were not eyewitnesses but heard from those who were right that's implied here and it was attested to us you and me by those who heard so even though the author and his audience weren't there witnessing Jesus perform the miracles and preach and die on the cross. It's still enough for him that it was attested by those who were. Meaning he received their testimony as eyewitnesses to the account about Christ. And that is how it is for you as well. This is what the Bible is, particularly the New Testament. You have access to eyewitness accounts. That is not the case with the majority of other religions. 
Even most historical books that we deem as indisputable, several hundred years are the earliest manuscripts we have. Even in some cases, thousands of years after the originals were supposed to be written. When you read the New Testament, these are people who themselves saw these things. So in the same way that the author of Hebrews 2,000 years ago says, I heard it from people who saw. That's you and me as well when you read the New Testament. It was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So you see, he's, he's escalating it. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And God himself also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Again, we have the idea of the intermediary. The apostles themselves and other people performing miracles. It was God speaking through those to communicate the truth about Jesus. Jesus prays. This is the pattern in the gospel. Jesus prays so that others would listen and hear that God is answering him. And then God responds with giving the blessing of the miracle. And I would go on. I know we're running out of time here. I would talk more about the role of miracles and attesting to the truth about Jesus. If it doesn't point you to the glory of Christ and want you and make you want to obey him more and be like him more then it's not from God. There are counterfeit signs and wonders. Be careful. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So a couple of things to notice here. You have a Trinitarian pattern. It was attested first by the Lord, Jesus, given to us by those who heard, and God also Himself attested to it. God the Father, He even spoke from heaven three times. And then the Holy Spirit distributes gifts according to His will. The evidences of grace you see in your life are supposed to serve as proofs that God is trustworthy. When you look at your life and you know for a fact that I couldn't be this way, I couldn't come to this point of clarity, I couldn't repent of this sin, or this person I know couldn't make this change in their own life without the work of the Holy Spirit, that is supposed to serve as proof to you that God is true and faithful and make you want to cling to His truth. So, as application, we must not neglect this great salvation. And here are a few ways for you to think about that and ask yourself. Don't let other events or experiences define your life. We can often brag about amazing experiences we've had. Think of the best of our lives as the sum of our experiences. We can summarize ourselves in lists of things we've done or what, or what we do. Our career. Our successes. Our pedigree. That's not what defines you. The great salvation he is talking about is the most important thing about you if you're in Christ. I know I'm beating the same drum over and over for these weeks, but it really is this important. What do you tend to and maintenance and think about and relish and communicate to others about in your heart of hearts? That 
is what you are making defined you. And if that's not Jesus and what he has done for you, what he did on the cross and what he promises to do one day when he returns, that shows a degree of neglect. Second, this is the biblical case for the ground of your confidence in the gospel that it's actually real. What I've just read, the fact that the Lord himself declared it and it was attested to us by those who heard and then God himself spoke from heaven, worked through miracles, and that the Holy Spirit gives us gifts according to his will, works in our lives according to his will. That's what the author puts forward as the case for our confidence that this is really true. So what is your ground of your confidence? Because whatever it is, if it's not something like that, it'll fail you. Because we've been through experiences in our lives where we say, well, God really showed up or God really did that. Or I became a Christian and then then X, Y and Z began to happen. And then your life can be turned upside down like Job. And if the ground of your confidence is in what you perceive as God doing in your life, and then that gets taken away, then you have no more confidence. For us today, the danger is we rest our confidence in how we feel. Most of the time, I feel near to God. Or I sense his presence. And if you pay attention to the Psalms when you read through them, that can be taken away very quickly. Your confidence, your trust in Christ is not based on how firm your convictions in your heart are or how intense your emotions are when you read the scripture. Sometimes you read the scripture and everything's flowing and your heart is responding and maybe there's tears and other times you just read it and nothing. That can't be the ground of your confidence because our hearts are fickle and deceive us. God gives us enough in his word as the ground of our confidence. It was attested by the Lord and declared to us by those who heard. Lastly, this is something that you'll have to think about and ponder. He says, how shall we escape meaning the wrath of God, if we neglect such a great salvation. So that one word there, neglect. Does that that describe your life? Does it describe my life? Because that's the question the author wants you to come away from these words, this case he builds with. Does neglect define my faith? There are many things in our lives like maybe finances or or health that we can tend to neglect. And the problem is most of those things don't serve as a good example of what it looks like to pay attention to something. You're doing really good in terms of finances if you have a quarterly review, right? And you can just have your savings taken out of your paycheck and you've got your insurance plan set up and it's just there in the background and it's going, and you meet with your advisor maybe once a quarter, and you make sure your plan's all in place. If that's the degree of attention you pay to, 
our confession, that's neglect. And this is why the author of Hebrews coming up in chapter 3 says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in that terms, in in that context, does your faith, does your commitment to the Lord look like neglect? And if it has been, let today be the end of neglect. The encouragement to you and me here at the end of this examination is the fact that he is commanding us implicitly to not neglect this great salvation is an invitation to cease that neglect. And that by the Spirit, you can begin to give the proper attention, as he said, to hold fast, to cling to Christ in a way that cannot be called neglect. And only by His grace will we do so. So I'm going to pray. The worship team will come. We'll sing a few songs if you need to talk to anyone. Pray with anyone. Please find me or pray where you are. Spend this time with the Lord as we respond in worship and in taking of our offerings. So pray with me. Father, I ask that today that you would take a flawed and limited explanation of your word and that you would work powerfully in the lives of everyone here, especially myself. That we would cling to and hold to Christ. That we would resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says that Christ has made me his own, yet I strive to make it my own. Pray that we would cease neglect today. Whatever that means for us in our own lives, whatever we have allowed to distract us, to take our attention and time and resources away from our hope in you, that we would abandon those today, that we would neglect those distractions. Pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake.